Well, our scripture reading this morning is taken from Mark's Gospel, um, chapter 6. I believe as we're going through Mark, maybe took a wee break for Easter last week, but we're back in Mark 6 today, um, verses 14 to 29. If you do have a Bible, please turn with me as we read together Mark 6, beginning at verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him, and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when on Herod's birthday he gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Amen. And we trust that God will add his own blessing to the reading of his word. Well, as we turn our attention to Mark 6, we find a unique passage in this chapter. Of course, Jesus is the central focus of all the Gospels, but here, just for a moment, that focus shifts onto John the Baptist, that great preacher of repentance, the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. And so the focus shifts to John for these, his last days before his death. And as we come to consider this passage this morning, there are three points for us to think about. First, the fearless preacher. Second, the fearful king. And then finally, the foolish promise. Well, we begin here in verse 14 with King Herod. And as we go through the Gospels and the Book of Acts, we come across a number of Herods. So we want to make sure we're dealing with the right one here. Well, this is Herod Antipas. And he was the son of Herod the Great. Now that's a misleading title because there was nothing great about Herod. Herod the Great is the king we meet in the Christmas story. When the wise men come to Jerusalem, they're following the star in search of this newborn king, and they go to see Herod. And Herod is furious that there's this newborn king because he thinks that this baby Jesus, this newborn king, is going to take his throne. And so Herod orders the slaughter of all the young boys in Bethlehem. He's a monstrous man. He's paranoid about keeping control of his throne, so much so that he orders the execution of two of his own wives and three of his own children. He's a really dreadful, monstrous sort of a man. 
But ultimately, he would not live forever. His kingdom would not last. And when he died, the kingdom was divided in four and shared out among his sons. Herod Antipas being one of them was given the region of Galilee. So he's called a king, but he didn't have much of a kingdom. It was only a quarter the size of his father's shipping. But as we shall see with Herod Antipas, the apple did not fall too far from the tree. And he starts to hear these stories. The sick are being healed. The dead are being raised to life. Demons are being cast out. What could all this be? Well, there is a prophet in Israel. Of course, it's Jesus. But Herod doesn't seem to know who Jesus is at this time. And so he thinks, this is John the Baptist who has been raised back to life. And that thought terrifies Herod. Because as we see in the Gospels and in the New Testament especially, resurrection is always closely tied with judgment. And we look at that when Jesus comes again, we are told he will come to judge the whole earth. But so too when he comes, the dead in Christ will be raised to new life. And this thought terrifies Herod. Now he wouldn't have been worried about Elijah coming back, nor any of the prophets of old, because he had nothing to do with them, he had no dealings with them. But the idea that John the Baptist could be back terrifies him, because of course the blood of John the Baptist stained Herod's hands. Now John had been a prophet like the prophets of old, for he, he dressed like them in camel's hair and a belt of leather. But so too did he preach like them in the spirit and power of Elijah. And John was a preacher of repentance, preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. And what he would do was he would baptise people with war. But he pointed people to the one who would come who would baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But John is now dead. Indeed it is Herod who is killed. But he hears these rumours. Some say it's John the Baptist. Some say it's Elijah. Some say it's the prophet of God. And Herod is scared. But why did Herod have John killed? Why was this? Well, it's because John confronted them over his sin. Herod had married a woman named Herodias. And this marriage was an abomination for a number of reasons, as we shall see. Well, as the name Herodias suggests, she was in fact a relative of Herod's. She was his niece. He has married his niece. It's an incestuous relationship. More than that, she is already married. So it's an adulterous relationship. And what is the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. But not only is she his niece, and not only is she already married, but she's actually married to his brother, Philip. I hope you're keeping up with this. It's like an episode of the Jeremy Kyle show. It's a messy family here. But Herod, seeing his brother's wife, he wanted her, he took her, and he married her. But she certainly had no complaints. In fact, she seems quite happy with the whole situation. Now, in the Mosaic Law, there is this provision. That if a woman's husband dies before he has fathered any children, she can marry his brother. The idea being that she will not have to live as a widow and that they will uh, raise up children so that the dead husband's name will not be forgotten from the earth. And if you're familiar with the book of Ruth, you'll see such a scenario play out. Ruth's husband dies, so too does her brother, but eventually she marries a man named Boaz, who, although not her husband's brother, he was a more distant relative. It's the same principle, that of the king's man, redeemer. But... Of course, Philip is not dead here. He's still very much alive. And of course, it was forbidden for a woman to marry her husband's brother while her husband was still alive. But this didn't seem to stop him. Yes, it's a real scandal. And you can imagine the religious leaders at the time, they would gather together and whisper about it in quiet rooms. But nobody would dare to speak openly against the king. 
That is except for John the Baptist, who confronts the king, saying it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. <coughs> yes, John was a preacher of great boldness. But Herod didn't like this. And Herodias hated it, and so they seized John and had him put in prison. We're reminded here of another John, a great John of history, and as the good Presbyterians that we all are, we're thinking now of John Knox, that great Scottish reformer, a fearless preacher, a man who would compromise in the face of sin, and who in great boldness would stand before the monarch of the land. And God used this man to transform the nation of Scotland, as he would preach the gospel, shining light into the darkness of false religion. And even Mary, Queen of Scots, that great enemy of the gospel, there were times she would be sitting opposite him, but still he would climb into that pulpit in Edinburgh and he would thunder the word of God. He would preach it with an, a power and authority that had never before been seen. And he did not care for reputation. He did not care for position. He did not fear prison nor death nor anything else that the queen could do to him. But when he preached, he preached faithfully. And then on one occasion, when he's opposite Queen Mary, he says this, I am no master of myself, but must obey him who commands me to speak plain and to flatter no flesh on the face of the earth. You see, in their many confrontations, John Knox even reduced Mary to tears. But he wouldn't compromise on his message. He knew that he was commissioned by God to preach this gospel, and he wasn't going to change it. He wasn't going to soften it up. He wasn't going to alter it to flatter anyone's flesh. No, when he preached, he called sin, sin. And just like John the Baptist had done all those centuries before, when he preached, he exposed sin for what it really is, rebellion against God. Well, you see, we live in a society today that is rebelling against God because it's a society that celebrates sin. There were some sins just a few years ago. They were always there, but they were done in secret. They were done in private. Nobody could ever know but today they're done in the open. All sorts of wickedness, immorality, they're done in the public eye for everyone to see because we have lost shame, we have no fear of God before our eyes and so the world does these things and celebrates them, cheers them on and calls them good. Well in every age there were some, often very few, like John the Baptist, like John Knox, these men who wouldn't compromise in the face of sin, who with boldness would oppose it, who would stand fast to the word of God no matter what the personal consequences for themselves might be. And folks, we're called here today, if we truly do believe this to be the word of the living God, to make that same stand, to oppose the wickedness of our day. See, the word does, says it does not want to get rid of the Bible. It just says it wants to rewrite some parts of it. But that is all the same thing. But if this gospel really is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe, then we've got to hold to it. We cannot be ashamed of it. And we need to stand back. We need to make that stand. Whether it's in work, at school, at university, maybe even in the home, we need to be prepared to make that stand. And it's not always easy. Jesus never told us that it would be easy. But he did make us this promise. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And yes, those prophets of old, uh, in the Old Testament, they were mistreated, they were abused. That's what happened in Israel. The call to be a prophet was not a call to a life of honour, but to one of hardship and suffering. We see at the end of this passage, John the Baptist, what happens when he dies? His followers take his body away, they lay it in a tomb. He's almost forgotten about. There's no ceremony, no eulogy. John Knox, the most influential man who ever came from Scotland, what happened to him? Was he buried in some golden coffin? No. 
He's buried underneath layers of concrete and built a car park over his grave. You see, God's people rarely experience great reward in this life. What does the Apostle Paul write in Romans 8 and 18? For I consider that the sufferings of this present life are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory that is to be revealed, maybe not in this life, but certainly in eternity. And so that is John the Baptist, this fearless preacher, who opposed a fearful king. That's our second point, this fearful king. Look with me there to verses 19 and 20. We see that Herodias hated John and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So notice the contrast in the reaction there. They've both taken part in this sin. They're both guilty of adultery, but they have different reactions when they hear John confronting them. Herodias, she is saving that he would dare bring up her guilt. But Herod, he seems for a moment to consider what John has to say. Now the reaction of Herodias should not surprise us because we see that all around us in the world today. Nothing upsets people quite like that word, sin. Such a small little word, but such anger it can provoke. People will readily admit they're not perfect. They make mistakes, they have done wrong. But they will never be called a sinner. They'll flat out refuse them. But of course, what is sin? Well, sin is simply a failure to conform at any point to the law of God. If you tell a lie, that makes you a liar. And of course, liars are sinners. And people will admit that they tell lies. They will confess to being liars. But no, they will not be called sinners. And if you dare to call someone a sinner, oh, the rage that that can provoke. But of course, they're not angry with you. No, they're angry with God and with his word that they would dare to expose them for what they are. But Herod's reaction is slightly different here. Indeed, it seems strange. Herod feared John, and yet he heard him gladly. Have you ever been glad about something that gave you cause to fear? Sounds strange. Imagine you're walking home late at night, all alone underneath a pitch black sky. That's reason to be fearful, isn't it? You wouldn't be glad in that situation. Or even when you're sitting there at home and you see one of those thick, hairy, dark, long-legged spiders just scurrying across the floor. Oh, that's a fearful situation. Uh -huh. We've all been there. No, it's strange to say that you're glad in the face of fear. But think of that spider. You know the sort I'm talking about. Strange how something so small can bring squeals from men and women of all ages. But when you see that spider, when you lay eyes on it, that's when the adrenaline kicks in. You fix your eyes on it. You don't dare look away. You don't even dare to blink for in an instant that spider will disappear. Could be days before you see him again. And the only thing worse than knowing that there's a big spider in the house is not knowing where that spider is. Well, aren't you glad in a way that you've seen that spider? Because as fearful as it is, at least you now know where it is. You can deal with it. And so you keep your eyes on it and you shout for someone else in the house to come along with a shoe or the hoover and deal with this problem. Yes, this maybe gives us an insight into Herod's mind here. For when John preached, he exposed Herod's sin. He warned Herod about the judgment to come, and this chilled Herod to the bone because Herod knew that John's message was true. He knew the truth of what he was hearing. And so as fearful as he was to know he was a sinner, to know this judgment was to come, he was glad to hear it because he knew he needed to. And in those days, speeches was the great entertainment. 
There's no television, no radio, you couldn't go watch a football match. But people would gather to hear the great orators and the debaters of the day think and, and speak and do all these things. But that's not why Herod listened to John. That's not why he was glad to hear John. John was not some highly trained speaker. He did not have some great education. I don't imagine he was a word of great or a man of great eloquence. But when John spoke, it was with a power and an urgency beyond anything else that Herod never heard. Because the authority was not in the man, the authority was in the message. And so that brings us to the great tragedy of this passage. Herod heard John gladly, and yet he did nothing. We might say, surely the tragedy here is the death of John the Baptist, that this great man should die such a miserable death. Well, certainly it's sad. Death always is. But we shouldn't weep for John. No, because he's gone on to be in glory. He is in that glory. He is experiencing it right now. No, we should weep for Herod. Because whilst Herod heard all these things in his head, he never made it to the heart. No, it was lost on him. He hardened his heart against it. He did nothing. His conscience weighed heavy on him. He knows that at this time he is outside of God's grace and that there's no more terrifying place to be. And he did nothing about it. His sin troubled him. He wouldn't have listened to John otherwise. But this message of repentance, he heard it gladly, time and again, but he wouldn't act on it. He did nothing with it. He could have known the grace of God. He could have known the forgiveness for his sins. But he didn't want it. He chose instead the fleeting pleasures of this life and the torment of the wrath of God that was to come in the next instead of the grace and glory he might have known for all eternity. And why? Simply because he loved sin. He loved it. The same might be said of us today. That? We go to church, we've certainly been watching online for the last few months. We sing these great hymns and we read God's word. We hear the minister read it or preach from it. And we think, I need to do something about that. You maybe consider praying to Jesus, asking him to forgive you for your sins. But for some reason, whatever it is, you just never have. You just never seem to get round to it. The opportunity passes you by. You think, ah, maybe next time. What is it? There's someone sin just gripping you, holding you back. And so in the end, you're only ever almost a Christian. You know, I have a dog at home. He's got very good hearing. As soon as he hears the back door open, he runs to pick up his ball, and within five seconds, he'll be at my feet before I've even stepped outside. And he wants me to throw that ball, so I reach out for it. And as I do, he turns his head to the right and to the left. He goes this way and that. You need to be quick to actually grab it. And even then, he keeps his grip. You have to wrestle it from his jaws. He wants me to throw the ball, but he won't give it to me. And I say to him, in the vain hope that he can understand English, if you want me to throw the ball, give me the ball. But isn't that how we treat our sin? We would go to Christ, that he would forgive us of our sin, that he would take it from us, that he would take it upon himself as he did upon the cross. But the thing is that when Christ takes our sin, he will either take all of it or he will take nothing. And we cannot pick and choose which sins to keep and which to repent of. It's all or it's nothing. And so like that dog, we come with our sin, wanting Jesus to take it. We don't actually want to give it to him. That one sin that holds us back, that one sin we just want to keep a grip of, it is that one sin that can condemn us for all eternity. See, if you had a told Herod, he could have bought forgiveness. Oh, he'd have paid that price. If you told him through some ritual or whatever it might be, he could earn it. Well, he'd have given that a go. But when Herod hears that he needs to repent, that's just something he's not prepared to do. No. See, for Herod, it was adultery. What might it be for us? 
lust, pride, greed, drunkenness, any number of sins, just even one that keeps the grip of us. J.C. Ryan, the great evangelical bishop of Liverpool, in his commentary on this passage, writes these words, please do listen. Let us keep back nothing, cleave to no favourite vice, spare nothing that stands between us and salvation. Let us often look within and make sure that there is no darling lust or pet transgression, which Herodias like is murdering our souls. Murdering our souls, that is what sin is doing. Murdering our souls. See, it is a fearful thing to hear the preaching of God's word and to simply do nothing. And that's because we never know when will be the last time that we ever hear God's word. We leave church on a Sunday, not knowing if we'll be there next week, because of course we do not know what each new day will bring. You go to bed in the morning with no guarantees of the next day. You'd rather go to bed at night, but anyway, this is what Herod has been doing. He's passed by the opportunity, time and time again. The word of God ultimately is taken from Herod because of his own foolish promise, because he just kept passing up on it. Notice how verse 21 begins. Herodias is one that put John to death. Herod has kept him safe, but an opportunity came. And this is where Herod will make his foolish promise. Indeed, that is our third point, the foolish promise. An opportunity came. It was Herod's birthday, and he throws this great banquet. He's got all the military commanders, all the leading men of Galilee, all the nobles. Plenty of food, and no doubt quite a bit of wine was had by the time the evening's entertainment came. As Herodias' own daughter comes in to dance for them. And we can be sure that this dance was not ballet, no. You can probably imagine it was this very erotic, sensuous dance. The sort of thing that celebrities do these days to try and stay relevant. The sort of thing that provokes increasingly less controversy because as a culture we've become desensitised to it. That's the sort of dance that's going on here. You know the sort of watch I'm speaking of. And yet it pleased Herod and his guests. And so now Herod makes his foolish vow. Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half my kingdom. This was a common phrase that a ruler would have given at the time. Uh, we're not to read into it. Literally, Herod was not about to part with half of everything he owned. But it's hyperbole, really. It's a very generous gift. He is prepared to reward this girl tremendously. And so she goes to seek the advice of her mum. And here, Herodias, she is rubbing her hands with glee. This is the moment she has been waiting for. This is what all her scheming has come to. That nasty man, John the Baptist, who made her feel ever so guilty. Shall finally be rid of him. And so Herodias' daughter returns to Herod. Look here at verse 25, and you'll see the speed with which evil moves. She came in immediately and with haste to the king. See, what does the prophet Isaiah say about the wicked? Their feet run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. At once, there it is again. Why the urgency? Well, perhaps Herodias feared that Herod would go back on his word. She knew he would be reluctant to kill John and thought he might go back. Well, she needn't have worried because Herod was a man of great pride. He was a fearful king and he was a man of foolish pride. He wasn't going to go back on the word that he had made in front of all his peers. No, he stuck to it. And so there's some practical wisdom for us here. 
Never to make a foolish promise. More specifically, never promise something which God's word forbids. Oaths and vows, they've sort of gone out of fashion these days. You don't really hear people swearing an oath. But when the Westminster Confession of Faith was written, those great Puritan ministers knew the significance of it so much so that they dedicated an entire chapter of the Confession to oaths and vows. And these here words in particular, neither may any man bind himself by oath to anything but what is good and just. Well, there was nothing good or just about this vow. No, if ever there were grounds for not fulfilling a vow, it is here. Why? Because Herod is about to kill an innocent man. But his pride is too great. He goes through with it. And immediately, we see it there again in verse 27, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And we saw at the beginning of this passage that Herod's actions had troubled him, at least for a time anyway. This was not him under the conviction of sin, it was merely regret, and as time passed he soon learned how to ignore it. Because the next time that we see Herod, it is in Luke 23, as Jesus is being tried before he goes to the cross. And Herod has this opportunity to interrogate Jesus. And what do we read in Luke 23? That Herod questioned him at some length. But Jesus made no answer. Time and time again, Herod is exposed to the word of God through John the Baptist. Continually, he does nothing about it until eventually God takes his word from Herod. And so now Herod stands before Jesus, before the very Son of God. And Jesus does not even open his mouth. He is silent. Herod will not get the chance to hear God's word again. And folks, that is a thought that should terrify every single one of us. That we might so pass by God's word untouched to the point where God would take his word from us. It even ties into the catechism we were looking at earlier, doesn't it? That it's through the word of God that we come to know the Son of God. That the word of God is effectual to salvation because it tells us about Jesus. But if God's word is taken from us, there can be no hope. To avoid God's word applying heat to Herod's conscience, it had grown cold and hardened and dull. Once it might have been said that he was almost a Christian. He at least entertained the things of God, but now that is just a distant memory. He kept on passing it by. He loved his sin. He couldn't give it up. He was almost convinced. He was almost a Christian, but almost counts for nothing. And so, friends, do not make that same decision today. Because you have heard the word of God calling you to Christ in repentance and faith. God has given you a conscience which testifies against you. We are all without excuse. We know that we must come to Christ this year. What do we do? Well, without Christ we are without hope and without a saviour in this world. For there is a coming judgment and outside of Christ none can stand. Yes, Herod is a foolish king. But in Christ, we have a greater king, the king of kings. Herod made a foolish vow. But all of Christ's promises are good and just and sure. And the promise of Christ, that if we come to him in faith and repenting of our sins, is that he will never cast us out. As the hymn writer says, what a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. And so friends, do not let the opportunity pass you by today. Do not harden yourself to God's word. 
Come now to Christ while the opportunity is there. Let us pray together.